0: When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common—a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. Joining me for this episode is Rev. Bodan Vedas. Pastor Bodan is pastor at Tierra Santa Lutheran Church in San Diego, California. Pastor Bodan serves as president of the Fellowship of Recovering Lutheran Clergy, the FRLC. I met him at an annual retreat of the FRLC in Cumberland, Texas in 2002. We've been good friends and colleagues ever since. Bodan tells us his story today over Zoom while sitting in his car outside his church in San Diego with me in St. Paul at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting. What's the temperature out there, Bo Dan?
1: Oh, it's beautiful. I'm supposed to always say 75 and sunny to make the tour. <laughs> yeah, out. beautiful. It's a little bit cloudy today, but I would say it's about 65 degrees. Bodan and I go back
0: a long ways. We've known each other for a long time. He's in San Diego. He started here in Minnesota, has an amazing story. You and I have been uh, part of each other's lives for a long time. Uh, I think I remember you were in Minnesota, and then you took a call in North Dakota, and then now San Diego, and you've been down there for a while. What we're trying to do with this this podcast is talk about your experience with... uh, addiction and recovery we want to hear what god did in your life with all of that so you know the format in 12-step in groups is what was it like what happened and what it's like now so you want to take us on that journey a little bit
1: you know i'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity and I'm, I'm grateful to be sober today it's it is a miracle in my life i'm the son of a pastor so my dad you know is retired now but was a lutheran pastor in northern minnesota my mom was a counselor you know so you know, I, I grew up in a family in north central Minnesota, Bemidji, first city on the Mississippi, um, town of 10,000 people. We thought it was the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, we were, we were close. It was pretty close to the middle of nowhere, but it was a great place to grow up. And uh, I grew up, you know, not, you know, as I say, I'm a pastor's kid. There's a couple of different kinds of pastor's kids, too. I, and I should tell you, you know, I have an older brother and an older sister. They they and family systems are the hero and the rebel, yeah. you know, I'm I'm kind of the lost child, you know, uh, is where I am. And I have a younger sister. So I grew up third out of four, had a real positive, you know, experience. I won't say I grew up in Mayberry, but pretty, pretty close, you know, quiet, you know, peaceful town, good place to raise a family. Dad was pastor at a a wonderful congregation. And uh, I grew up, you know, in a, in a quiet way, you know, I was committed to hockey and football and, uh, you know, school was really important to me. And, uh, you know, I was the pastor well, still. Hey, I got
0: I to gotta interject here. What does what the name Bodan Vedas come from? Because that's not a typical Scandinavian, Lutheran
1: name either.
0: Well,
1: thank, thank you for asking, sir. <laughs> I asked my dad what, one time, you know, where, where, how did you figure this one out? Because my older brother is Timothy, then my older sister is Christina, and then they get to me and get creative. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, my dad, you know, rediscovers his roots, his ethnic Slovak name means "gift of God" in ah, Slovak. Nice. You know, you got Vadas. You know, that's my last name, and and uh, you, you know, a lot of people look at it. And in Latin, you know, a lot of people have seen "Quo Vadis," hmm. which is "Where are you going?" Um, and so, right. <laughs> and there's a famous movie and a play, you know, a book. Um, you know, "Quo Vadis, Domine?" Where are you going, Lord? Hmm. And uh, <laughs> you know. Of course, one of my Latin professors got really excited and said, it's got to be Latin. I'm like, yeah, no, it's the Slovakian. Not- <laughs> you know, for me as a pastor's kid growing up in northern Minnesota, I was, you know, I, I won't say I was the quiet kid. I won't say I was the most popular kid, um, but I was committed to sports and academics. And, uh, you know, the reality was I, I probably wasn't the most fun. And so for whatever reason, I wasn't invited to the parties hmm. in high or growing up, you know, I think in part because they didn't want to invite the narc, you know, the pastor's
0: kid, the straight lace, right?
1: (laughs) And I think, you know, even growing up, you know, we'd go around (laughs) on hockey tournaments and the other parents who were having parties and drinking said, yeah, don't, don't let, you you know, that preacher's kid come into the room, (laughs) keep him out. And so, you know, I grew up at school, uh, you know, waiting at the lockers in Northern Minnesota. That was the big thing on Monday morning we'd all hang out at our lockers in high school before, uh, before school. And I'd hear the stories from my friends. My friends had all been partying, you know, that weekend and they would come to school on Monday morning with the exciting escapades of, you know, who kissed who and, you know, who fell in the fire, who peed their pants, you know, and I, I remember hearing those stories and just feeling left out, you know, feeling, feeling like, you know, when, when am I going to get invited to one of these? And, uh, I, I can remember the day, you know, where I, I found my, my friends. It was actually county fair time, and one of my friends had a trailer out at the fair. And uh, I was working, uh, uh, you know, at uh, Holden Village. They call it garbology.
0: Oh, yeah. Like, I met my wife on garbology.
1: <laughs> at the county fair. I got to travel around in an old meetup up truck and pick up all the old garbage cans and dump them. And, uh, you know, it's spent a full day working and it was, you know, nine 30, I was done working, but I didn't have a car. So I would just graduated high school. You know, my friends were, were hanging out at this trailer and, uh, they had been drinking for a while. They were, they had red solo cups and, you know, they were, they were sitting around talking. They were a little bit loud. And I, and I came in to hang out with them for a few minutes, just a couple of minutes. I didn't have a car. So my dad was going to pick me up and I, I sat in there and. You know, I could I could smell you know the alcohol wafting through the air. I I can still remember. I'm transported back to that place, and uh, finally, I was in an opportunity where a friend said, "Hey, do you want a drink?" And I said, "Yes." And I can remember you know them pouring a rum and coke. How old are you Uh, then?
0: How old are you there?
1: I was 18 at the time, just graduated.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay.
1: I just graduated high school and I'm, I'm in that moment and I can remember, you know, who's in the room. I won't, I won't name names, but, uh, you know, I can remember who's there and I can remember, you know, just kind of being there and saying, wow, I'm included. And I took that first drink and I, I can remember how it burned. I can remember it going down. I can remember saying, man, this doesn't taste really great. And I'm not <laughs> sure I'm excited about this. And in a minute, I could feel that sense of warmth that mm-hmm. started to come over my body all the way down to my toes. And I can remember I, I drank that pretty fast. And I sat there and I didn't know what to do because uh, I wanted another drink, but I didn't want to ask for one. And finally, you know, they poured themselves one and poured me another. And I, I think I had three drinks, you know, and then all of a sudden I looked at the time and I realized Oh no, dad's been waiting for half an hour. And so I got a go, and I sprinted across the, the fairgrounds. My dad was out of the car, wandering around looking for me. He was pretty frustrated. I got there, I, we got in the car, and all of a sudden the thought hit me. I bet you I smell like booze. And so I remember thinking, if I just roll the window down, if I just breathe out the window and talk really fast, like, you know, nothing is wrong. Everything's (laughs) normal. You know, and we drove the 15 minutes, you know, I'm sure my dad smelled it on my breath. I'm sure he did. Didn't say a word. And I can remember he pulled into the driveway. I went into the house, went into my room and that thought came, uh, you know, I got away with it. Hmm. There weren't any consequences. Nothing bad happened. And, uh, you know, from that moment on, I had a problem with alcohol. Hmm. I, I didn't know when the next opportunity was going to come, but I, I knew that what I had experienced was what those people were talking about on Monday mornings. <laughs> you know, I was now going to be the guy who kissed the girl and who fell in the fire and who peed their pants, you know, <laughs> that, that sounded like a lot of fun to me. And, uh, you know, I was no longer, you know, feeling left out. The next opportunity didn't happen until I I went to college. Hmm. I I went to a good church school, Gustavus Adolphus College, down at St. Peter, fantastic place. And, you know, I went, you know, tried to play football, tried to play hockey. And uh, when I went, uh, you know, to college, uh, you know, I went with the football guys and the football guys had a party. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I went to my first college party. It was a rite of passage. And I started to feel good you know and then the opportunities to party you know cuz that's what we called it you know it, we called sure. it party you know and and uh, i think they still do no <laughs> <laughs> but this idea that you know once access opened up in college you know i started only drinking you know cuz i said you know only on the weekend you know only friday night and then pretty soon in college it was you know friday and saturday and then pretty soon it was thursday and friday and saturday And then pretty soon it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I mean, within about two years, I was a daily drinker, Mm. you know, and, and not just a daily drinker, my roommates would come back and, you know, I'd be done with classes and uh, it would be, you know, three in the afternoon and uh, I would be sitting on the couch in the dorm room, you know, with the Christmas lights on, listening to really sad music, you know, and drinking (laughs) and, uh, you know, they would come in and say, hey, doing it again (laughs) you know what's going on and you know it it was accepted you know it was college and you know we're just blowing off some steam we're just having fun
0: well you're pastor's kid so you have a lot of time to make up for you had a lot of
1: you got it i i had years of you know not drinking to make up for and and within a, a short period of time these strange things called consequences started happening you know, I, I started, you know, being drunk at the wrong time. You know, <laughs> I started, you know, but academically, I, I didn't have any problems, you know, and I could still, you know, my, My 21st birthday was, was not a joyous occasion. It was more of a debacle. I had, you know, tryouts for, uh, you know, the hockey team the next day I had, you know, tried to play hockey and, you know, was on the, you know, JV team and, you know, I'm, I'm a junior. And finally, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm think I'm getting better. And, you know, I, I, the night before is my 21st birthday. And, uh, so I do what, you know, 20, you know, I could still remember my, my college roommates, you know, brought some popcorn to the table when we were drinking and I, I put it in my mouth and I could just say it was wet. And I said, what's wrong with this popcorn? And they said, well, it's got Tabasco sauce on it. You know, <laughs> I couldn't, I, it didn't taste hot to me. It just tasted wet. And, uh, you know, they said, well, it's going to help you drink more. You know, it's going to, you're going to get thirsty and you're going to want to drink out. You know, I was already, you know, gone. You know, that night, you know, a guy who I hadn't really got along with, you know, um, when we were freshmen, um, found me, you know, basically passed out trying to crawl back to campus. And he brought me back to campus and uh, he sat with me as I puked my guts out. And uh, you know, basically a guy saved my life. Mm. I would have had alcohol poisoning, you know, was literally passed out crawling back up the hill back to campus. I showed up for practice the next day, uh, you know, or tryouts and didn't go well. Mm. Didn't go well. So I ended up, you know, letting go of playing hockey, something I loved. I, I let go of playing football, something I loved because drinking was more important to me academically, I was still doing, doing well, except for this moment where it was like, Oh, wow. You know, what is going on? And, uh, you know, so I turned, I, I went to counseling. I, I went back to the house I lived in, uh, one night and they were having a party and one of my roommates said, well, you're not drinking. I said, no, no, I made a commitment not to drink for two weeks. And and he said, what do you mean? You're never going to drink ever again. <laughs> And I said, well, no, I'm going to drink again. And he said, well, if you're going to drink again, why not tonight? And that was all it took. <laughs> that was all it took. was back to the races. And so that was the way my life was. I would hit consequences. I would sober up. And, it, it, you know, I, I was in denial about, you know, what booze was doing. But I knew I didn't drink and use like other people. Mm. I knew I knew I didn't drink like other people. You know, and that's why I didn't hang out with them. All my friends, you know, drank the way I did. And, uh, you know, that that helped me to justify, you know, I'm just doing what other people are doing. I'm young. I'm in college, you know, Mm. get older. Then I'll I'll have to quit or I'll have to, you know, manage or, you know, and life won't be the same. You know, I'm just already and I'm just chasing a good time. Well, you know, things went on. I had fits and starts of trying to not drink. Life would get a little better. I would think a little clearer. You know, and I, I applied to seminaries, you know, I went to, you know, seminary, got drunk at the welcome to seminary party and uh, <laughs> exactly what happened, but wasn't good. You know, pretty soon, you know, a couple of weeks in, I had, you know, I, I had, uh, you know, other people talking about me and my drinking. You know, I, I had moments where I tried to stop drinking, went into counseling because you know it wasn't working. I wasn't really succeeding at life. And they would say things like, you know, maybe it's your drinking. I'd be like, No, it's not my I could quit anytime, you know. I really if I wanted to. Right. And when I went to seminary, I mean, I don't want to shock your viewers too much, but that's when my drug use mm. really started to take off. Professors, um, my classmates and they didn't know what to do you know the idea was well you know you won't succeed academically but because you know i had gone to a pretty good you know college and mm-hmm. you know gotten a good education in religion and classics seminary was actually pretty remedial academic mm-hmm. and uh so the grades weren't a big problem um and, and, you know i didn't have a career where it really hit you know hit was i, I was dating a woman who was also at seminary and uh you know what had happened in the past was I'd fall in love with a woman. And then after, you know, a certain period of time, they would kind of get tired of my shenanigans (laughs) and they would, you know, say, yeah, I think, I think we'd be better, better off uh, apart. And uh, (laughs) she did that, you know, and I I thought we had a future. I thought things were going. And so, you know, kind of the one thing that was, was keeping me restrained, which was that relationship was gone. Hmm. And so I, I was getting ready to go on, on to internship. I had gone through two years academically of classroom. And the summer before my internship, I was working at the seminary doing grounds crew, not garbology, like out at right. the county. You know, I, I did the same thing. You know, I I, I helped around the, the campus to keep things, you know, in decent work and order. And, you know, I, I knew when I was on internship, I was going to have to, you know, straighten up a bit. And so the summer before, I was like, if I just get all my party out, <laughs> out of your system day after day after day was just, you know, drinking and using, drinking and using, drinking and using. You know, the opportunity to go with some friends to a, a, a festival, a music concert, three hmm. nights of joy and celebration. Problem was, after the third night, I had to be, you know, at, you know, my internship. And so it's kind of like, you know, in college that, that, you know, hockey tryouts, you know, i got the big day, but no problem. I'll drink three days nonstop. And and then, you know, I'll be able to show up, you know, at seven in the morning, you know, for that big event and be able to function. Well, the reality was I put enough uh, chemicals in my body that I was not able to function. Mm. In fact, I didn't think I was ever going to be sane ever again. One of my seminary uh, friends and classmates took me to Alta Bates, you know, hospital into the emergency room because I had a head full of booze and dope. And uh, I sat there and looked at the emergency room doctor and said, am I ever going to be sane ever again? Hmm. Just full of um, paranoia, full of just uh, my panic was, you know, uncontainable. And uh, my brother had also come, you know, to seminary. He, he followed me. He's the older brother, but, you know, in my, my family, being a pastor is a family disease. Sure, you know, my yeah. dad's a pastor, <laughs> you know, my brother's a pastor, my sister-in-law's a pastor, and uh, my brother came, and uh, I picked him up at the airport, and uh, he knew something was off. You know, he knew something was off, and I, I had been, you know, to... You know, the emergency room, things were not working out, and uh, my, my brother made a, made a panicked phone call to my dad and, and mom, and and he said, you know, something's going on with Bodan. He didn't really say what. I, I mean, I, I think, honestly, he didn't know it was the alcohol. He didn't know it was the chemicals. He He thought maybe I had, you know, gone crazy. You know, I, I thought my phone was tapped. Uh, I was sawing apart the, the speakers in my room because somebody was listening to me. I mean, I was, I was not a little bit out of my mind. I was out of my mind. And, you know, the drugs I was taking, you know, I can understand, you know, when people go, you know, out of their mind because of the chemicals they're putting in their, their body. My dad, you know, takes a leave from work, comes out, you know, and, and tries to, you know, help me connect you know, tries to talk to some of the, the seminary staff, I, I reached out to a couple of my professors, you know, to say, you know, my life is falling apart. And one of my professors literally took out the yellow pages, and started <laughs> for a resource, and she looked at me and she said, you think this would be you would think this would be a place we would have some resources for you, but but I don't really even know anywhere. You know, yeah. they didn't have a treatment center connection. They didn't know where to send me. One of the admissions directors, his wife was also a marriage and family therapist. And I had seen her once or twice for therapy. And I reached out to her and she just simply said, Go go to AA. Right. Go to AA. And of course I said, no, 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 no. My problems are much bigger than that. It is not going to cut it. Yeah. You know, I need, I need some serious, you know, help here and, you know, really, you know, I I was out of my mind, and and that's when I went, you know, to Alta Bates and told the, the emergency room doctor, you know, my brain is not working. You need to prescribe something to help me calm down, and and they gave me a couple of pills, you know, van, I think, to try and regulate my emotions and calm me down because I was really out of it, you know. And if you don't know this, you know, going to the emergency room in Berkeley, California you know, uh, in the evening, not a good thing. I mean, I walked past people who were strapped to gurneys and screaming and yelling, you know, did not help my anxiety calm down. You know, actually. And, uh, Ella, you know, escalated everything that was going on inside of me, you know, just a ton of inner turmoil. And I reached out for help and, and you know, Professor Carroll said, you know, we just don't have any resources, don't know what to do, took the yellow pages down. And finally, you know, she called a couple of numbers, wasn't able to do anything. I found out, you know, California just passed treatment on demand, which meant there should be a bed for everybody who needs a bed in treatment centers. Hmm. And basically a couple of places, I called them up and they said, well, you know, we can do an intake, but we're not going to have a bed for a month. And I said, I, I can't wait a month. My dad had, you know, arrived at that time, You know, I don't know what's going on. I'm floundering to try and get help. And, uh, you know, I I had a couple of beers in the fridge and, you know, my dad shows up and I can still remember I I had never, never drinking a beer with my dad. I never just sat down and had that wonderful experience. And, you know, as an alcoholic, what did I want to do at that moment in my life? What seemed like a good thing to do? (laughs) Falling apart because of booze and drugs. And what is the one thing I want to do? I I asked my dad if he wants a beer. (laughs) uh, My dad looked at me like I had lost my mind and said, "Oh, I don't think I'm going to do that with you. (laughs) I really felt left out again. And, uh, you know, my dad ended up, you know, I ended up taking a leave of absence from seminary, went back to Minnesota through a family connection, the associate pastor who was working with my dad. She, you know, said, if you go talk to the county resource agent, You know, the guy who does the intakes for the drunk drivers and everybody, you know, he might have an ability to get you in. And so I went in, you know, talked to him on a Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock. Taking a leave of absence, thought I had flushed my career down the toilet, um, had left school, didn't know if I would ever be going back, moving in with my parents. I'm 24 years old. You know, life is a mess. And I talked to Gary. And uh, Gary, the research agent, you know, he does the intake. And at the end of it, he says, well, what do you want to do? I said, I, I really think I got to go to inpatient treatment. And uh, he said, well, we got a bed. We could leave right now. <laughs> I said, no, no. How no. about Thursday after? <laughs> right. you know, let me pack a few things.
0: Right,
1: and right, right. I'm not ready to leave today. <laughs> and, you know, I'm grateful that he allowed that. You know, I show up went into a 28 day inpatient. Uh, You know, I got all kinds of war stories from that. You know, one of my favorites was, you know, I'm sitting there at Pine Manor Treatment Center in Nevis and uh, you know, feeling just, you know, like everything is off, but, but it was a turning point. And I'm like, maybe now, You know, I'm gonna be able to. And and for me, coming into treatment was a great relief. I mean, the other patients there, you know, said when I walked in and shook their hands and was so happy, you know, they (laughs) didn't know what was going on. I found out later I was the only person who wasn't court ordered into that. They were all court ordered. And and many of them like my I had two roommates, you know, both of them were Native American. One guy was getting ready to go to prison for about eight years and one guy was getting out of six years of prison you know i was the only person who walked in and and you know i lied to myself for a lot of years and said oh i'm i'm walking in willingly no no i wasn't you know i i walked in they they didn't bring me in in handcuffs but i had no place else to go you know the the wreckage and everything i had tried you know and and you know years later a guy said you know we tried plan a you know, recovery is plan B. Plan A failed miserably. And that's the truth for me. I tried to manage my life. I tried to have things work. I tried to do what the big book says to drink and use, you know, like a gentleman. And anytime time I put a chemical in my body, I don't know what's going to happen. And I knew that from a very beginning, you know, and for a while that was fun. And then the consequences just started piling up. And I later learned, you know, uh, that addiction, you know, uh, loss of control, continued use despite consequences, you know, that there are diagnosable symptoms. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, nobody really explained that to me. Nobody really knew. Even the guy who took down the DSM, you know, and I think he was yeah. trying to communicate that to me, but he wasn't able to get through. And he wasn't able to get through because my denial was so thick, you know? And I I, I later learned, you know, denial is that system of rationalization, justification and minimization, you know, that keep things the way they are. And uh, for me, you know, my life, and there were enablers, you know, people at seminary, people at college who, you know, like you asked, you know, you would think maybe somebody would have spoken honestly, you know, and I think some people tried along the way. You know, but anytime they said, well, maybe it's your drinking, you know, the conversation was over. And so I came to that turning. Finally, I, there were a lot of turning points before that, where I could have stopped. Mm. I always had reasons to keep using, or I always had reasons to pick up again. And I came to that point and went to treatment. So happy, you know, the relief was there, you know, I don't, and, and I heard that message of, you know, um, I heard that message of, you don't you don't have to drink. You know I had come to a point where, you know, uh, you know not being able to drink, you know, seemed like a punishment. Right. You know, but I finally heard that message of not drinking as as a reward, as something that would be good hmm. and something that was active in my life. But for you know to be honest, a- after college, I had tried to manage my drinking and I wasn't able to. And so you know i didn't think i i could stop i didn't think a life without booze was possible for me you know i i I had tried to manage and not drink i tried to go two weeks couldn't do it you know eventually i picked back up and i i went to treatment and they started to talk about these you know loss of control continued use despite consequences they started to explain the disease concept to me of alcoholism you know that i wasn't a bad person needing to get good as many people have said. Mm person who needed to get well they started to help me understand and, and these were really eye-opening things you I thought I was just a drunk well you, you know, know that
0: basically. was a, that was my experience too because I, I, I I'm you know right until the day I went into treatment I thought I ah, something's wrong but it isn't drugs it isn't alcohol yeah. it's yeah. it's something but I don't know what it is but then I got educated and I went oh my gosh this explains everything and I just think of how much uh difference it makes to understand what you're dealing with
1: yeah, I mean, and even in recovery we were saying self knowledge availed us nothing, you know, right. the big books. But you know, this knowledge helped me to understand what was going on. And it cracked through my denial. You know, I could still remember the day at treatment. Oh, I love it. You know, we had, you know, small groups and group therapy and, and my regular therapist wasn't there that day. And, and the fill-in therapist was there. She had little, you know, Sally, Jesse, Raphael glasses with red rims. And, you know, she was a little older and Jerry was her name. And, and any group that had Jerry, the people in the morning would be like, oh man, we got Jerry today. And you know, Jerry led our group two and a half hours together. Everything seemed to be fine. I'm like, what's the big deal with this Jerry? You know, and at the end of group, she talked to me and, you know, she told me that, you know, I I had some pretty childish behavior (laughs) and that, you know, maybe I should go into my room and pray about my denial Wow. And uh, I remember, you know, looking at her and, and, and being a very passive aggressive church polite, you know, I remember that Thank you I really appreciate I know you're a professional and you you know get paid to do this, you know I really will take you know and I walked down the hall just kind of just seething inside and I walked down my room and I opened the door. And the windows were open, it was fall, and the wind caught the door, and it slammed really hard. And I remember thinking, she just told me I got childish behavior. I bet she thinks I just... (laughs) You slammed the door. And then I had this moment of calm, and this moment of, uh, you know, I, I do have some pretty childish behavior. You know, I have been in denial. For a long time in my life, it's time to take some responsibility, and you know I, I can't fix this on my own. But I'm here in treatment. I'm where I need to be, and uh, let me open up to uh, what they're what they're trying to say. And there was no doubt in my mind I was an alcoholic. You know, and it was that day, I think I, I really showed up in treatment and and showed up into recovery. I wasn't just around recovery. It was, I, I got to be invested in this and I, I got to, you know, put the time and energy and, and what are they telling me? They're telling me, I got to go to meetings. I got to read the big book. I got to get a sponsor. I got to work the steps. I got to spend some time in prayer and meditation. And they started to, you know, open my eyes to the disease of alcoholism and not just the idea that there are diagnosable symptoms, but the disease concept tells me there is treatment to it, just like any other disease, you know, and what is the treatment to the disease I have?
0: I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will present a new inspirational story about God's saving work every two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest theologians, speakers, authors, scholars, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work. After a long and prayerful discernment, it became very clear this was God calling. In fact, I've never been more sure about what God wanted me to do. What's also clear to me is that I will need a lot of help to make all this happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but I can't do this alone. And I can't get help if I don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help me do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? even small gifts given regularly make all the difference. If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictioninfaith.com and click on the donate button and help me as I work to help others. Thank you for listening and God bless you.
1: You know, and they used examples like, you know, if, if you have diabetes, you know, you gotta take your insulin. You know, my mm. older brother, type one diabetes and you know, he's got to take a shot, you know, and, and take insulin, you know, and okay, I got to go to meetings. I got to mm-hmm. take my medicine, you know, but I got this weird disease where my medicine comes in <laughs> through my ears. You know, and I you know, mean, I got to unplug them and listen for a while. You know, and I got to be open minded and I got to be willing to do some things. And, you know, I'm really grateful. I got out of that treatment center, you know, I went to, you know, uh, outpatient treatment, worked as a general laborer. You know, I actually got to work on the construction and remodel project of the church I grew up in, oh, you know, where my dad was a pastor, it was really amazing. You know, God opened this door. You know, I really had no place else to go and it was the only place that would hire me. If you don't know what a general laborer is, that's the person who has zero construction skills skills but can carry heavy
0: things (laughs) carry heavy stuff yep
1: i got to work outside in the coldest november december and recorded history you know building you know outside and it's i'm showing up and i'm happy to be there i got a job i still don't know if i'm going to be able to go back to seminary you know but finally i do that i do my outpatient therapy i go to aa meetings the other nights you know I, i get to know you know some of the people in recovery you know, I'm grateful. My very first sponsor, he, he didn't, you know, hammer me. He just said, go to meetings, go to meetings, go to meetings. And and the joy he had in his life because of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, because of recovery, you know, and and he wasn't really a slave driver to read the book. He wasn't really a, a person who pushed me hard on the steps. He shared his experience and that idea of attraction. You know, he mm-hmm. had something I wanted. He had a piece in his life that you know and he would go to meetings and he was you know 20 some years sober at the time and he was happy to go to a meeting it didn't feel like (laughs) i went with john it was it was really a joy and uh you know for me just his enthusiasm his joy for life and he was able to walk through life and, and and not be so tense or so frustrated or so you know difficult to manage he he was open, and, uh, you know, he, he gave that to me, and, you know, I, I moved back to to seminary. I, I ended up, you know, going on internship and uh, connected with the Fellowship Recovering Lutheran Clergy. After that, I got to do a, a chaplain internship at Hazelden Treatment Center, you cool. know, and list fifth steps, uh, lead uh, group two- and three-step meetings, uh, do a grief group. You know, it was kind of shocking. They allowed me to do some of that stuff. <laughs> Kind of amazing, you know, that, uh, you know, people were opening the door. And and very early on, it became clear that my recovery was going to be my biggest gift in ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll be honest, you know, what I've learned from my recovery helped me more than anything I learned in seminary. You know, anything I was taught during that, you know, for years in my life, uh, you know, my life in recovery has has taught me things. You know, I used to love, you know, listening to father Martin videos. Yes, they made so, a, yeah. Father Martin would say AA is where priests learn plumber who God is.
0: Right.
1: And as a pastor, you know, then I get ordained and get my first call in Fargo, North Dakota. And, uh, you know, I'm new there and, you know, then, You know, that that call lasts a couple of years and then I get called to to Sacramento and the interview process and the call process in Sacramento. They say, well, are you willing to take a drug test? That would be an honor. I know I'm going to (laughs) pass.
0: I've been studying for that test for years now.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I was several years sober. I didn't look at my, you know. Uh, you know, alcoholism as a shameful thing anymore, Mm. you know, recovery was central in my life. And I I, I learned from what people shared that, you know, if I don't place my recovery first, you know, I, I I don't have anything, Mm. you know, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm just over 20 years sober, you know, now, and, uh, you know, I've gone through some ups and downs in my life, my career has gone through some twists and turns, you know, but at that very first Fellowship Recovering Lutheran Clergy, there was a guy who I've gotten to know pretty pretty well. We've been to meetings. He's, a, he's another Lutheran pastor. And, uh, you know, his name is Paul. I hope you do his uh, story. And Paul shared something at that first retreat. He said, it's no longer a matter of faith for me. You know, I've had the direct experience of the power of God in my life. I'm sober today. Therefore, there is a God. Hmm. And, you know, God has done for me something I could not do for myself is what we say and what it's written in the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's that's true for me. You know, God has done God reached down into my life. And despite me, you know, despite my attempts to say, no, no, I, I think I need another beer, um, you know, <laughs> to an opportunity, cracked my denial open. And, and, you know, I'd like to say, you know, I'm open to God. You know, the reality is, you know, just like everybody else, it's not until I got nowhere else to turn. You know, my first sponsor didn't start at the step. He started at the seventh step. It was really weird. You know, he, he loved the seventh step, you know, humbly asked, you know, and, and he would take the 12 and 12 out and he would read about humility. And he would read about, you know, this idea that that humiliation and humility aren't the same thing, and that you know, humility could be something to be sought. That we could stay teachable. That we could stay open. That we could be, you know, uh, somebody who could could receive, you know, um, what God was sending us, you know. And, and for me, I, I was always confused. I'm like, why, why are you talking about step seven? I'm at step one. I don't. It doesn't. Right. Make- and, you know, I'm really grateful now looking back, you know, for all of his conversations. He shared his experience, strength, and hope and, and, and said, you know, take what you need, leave the rest. You know, and, and in the church, you know, I've tried to do, you know, uh, various things in recovery in, in my congregations. And, uh, you know, I've served three churches and, and there have been a few people in recovery, you know, and I share about my recovery. I use the language of of recovery at times, but I also know, you know, just like me, not everybody wants to hear it. Hmm. You know, I often, you know, will have family members reach out to me and say, you know, you got to get my spouse sober and, you know, can't, can't, you know, get anybody sober. And, you know, I've talked with people, I've shared my story with many people and, and I try to be open and honest Well, but you know,
0: as a pastor, and you know enough about this disease and what it does to not just the person afflicted, but the whole system that they're in. So you know how extensive this is and how how much it's in the church more than people want to know, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I want to be careful because I don't want to shame any of my congregation (laughs) members. So they're, you know, it's rampant. And, and, and today I don't blame people or, or, you know, shame people about that. You know, the denial in our culture around chemicals, yeah. you know, the denial in our culture about what those chemicals are doing. You know, what did I say? Denial was the rationalization, minimization and justification, you know, that keep the system stuck. You know, today what I've learned about, you know, addiction has helped me to understand, you know, church council meetings, mm-hmm. helped me to understand, yeah. you know, why, why do I really need this outcome? You know, why am I so stuck and nobody else seems to care about this? Why am I, you know, trying to force this, you know? And if I, if I'm the only one who cares about it, you know, that's not good, you know? And so I got to let go of certain things. If I'm, you know, pushing too hard, you know, God's not, not pushing that direction and, and God's not opening things and I can be okay with that you know, at the same time, there have been some disappointments, you know, I've lived through some, some difficult things in recovery, I've probably had more ends to make in recovery than I did. Uh, Reality is I drank from 18 to 24, you know, and I've been sober 20 years, I've been through, you know, a couple of divorces. And I've learned, you know, just because I'm sober doesn't mean my behavior and actions are perfect. You know, God's not done with me yet. And, uh, I've had to, you know, sit with some of that and uh, I've gone through two divorces in recovery, you know, and and I share some blame for that. And I'm, you know, not the only one to blame for that, you know, and, and, and that's been hard. Uh, you know, one of the things I learned growing up that I really would share with your listeners, it wasn't until my second divorce where I went through some therapy and the therapist I talked with, he said, pastor's family alcoholic family, same dysfunction. Hmm. Blew my mind because, you know, what he shared was in the alcoholic system, everybody's worried about dad's drinking and the public life and the private life are different. In a pastor's family, public persona, private persona. You know, we know what dad's like at home, but everybody else, you know, looks at him and we got to protect it. So impression management, you know, we got to control the narrative of what other think think and he started connecting some of these dots about the shame and about you know protecting somebody's career you know the yeah. alcoholic and the pastor's family similar interesting you know, yeah family. and so
0: there's a living of a lie there isn't there
1: absolutely yeah. and and so this this idea that even though i grew up with normie parents you know who had pretty good educations yep. you know through no fault of their own and you know they maybe dealt with it better than I did, you know, they dealt with, you know, being a pastor and a pastor's wife better than I did as a pastor's son. And uh, now as a pastor, how do I not perpetuate that? How do I, you know, understand that? How do I, you know, share that message, you know, that impression management and, and trying to, you know, deal with, you know, external things versus— You know, I think
0: part of that challenge—I think part of what you're describing, what I'm hearing a little bit there for me, is, uh, is that we live—being in recovery and also being leaders in the church, we live in two different worlds where there's different expectations. And in one world, uh, in recovery world, you get to be yourself, and you're accepted for who you are with all your flaws. You get to be real and genuine and open and honest and authentic and vulnerable— but you can't be that way in the church as a leader. And and uh, you, as a recovering person, you tend to be that way, but the church doesn't want that. I mean, they'll push against it. And so it's really uh, challenging to be an authentic leader in the church today because because the system doesn't want it, right? right. Is that, are you experiencing that?
1: Oh, I've experienced that a lot. In fact, I, I worked with a senior pastor who would share his struggles from the pulpit. People would come to me as the associate pastor and say, I want to hear that my pastor struggles <laughs> right. I want to hear that he's overcome them and he's got something to pass on. I want to hear he's <sighs> resilient. And at the same time to say as a leader, if I'm so racked with anxiety and pain and frustration, yeah, that's probably not good either. So I better take care of myself. And really one of the lessons I've had to learn is about self-care. You know, recovery has taught me, you know, I better care for myself you know, because if I'm waiting for the church to care for me, that might be a long wait. I've had to look for resources. That's where for me, you know, the Addiction and Faith Conference, you know, Fellowship Recovery Lutheran Clergy, you know, uh, to wait for somebody else to create something versus, hey, be a part of what's happening in well, certain it, You know,
0: I, you, you became, you got clean and sober while you were in the process of becoming a pastor. I got clean and sober before so I think there's a different experience there, but I admire and I marvel at the, fa- the, uh, the fact that pastors can get well in that environment because it is a challenging environment with a million different expectations and and people wanting you to live that lie. They don't want you to be real. They don't want you to be broken. And so you, you come up against that constantly. And for a pastor trying to, you know, kind of learn who he is again as a human being and heal from recovery, you know, from the dis- disease in that environment— is amazing. It's a miracle to me that anyone can get well with that.
1: Yeah. But if we're really going to talk about the healing of, you know, and and what God does in people's lives for transformation, you know, for me, the healing I've experienced, I still have some wounds from the church. Even when I tell people who aren't pastors, you know, some of my congregation members that I'm a part of the fellowship of recovering Lutheran clergy, they listen to that and they hear that as, you know, they've heard maybe the phrase, I'm a recovering Catholic.
0: You know, right, that right, we're recovering as clergy. <laughs>
1: so bad that you have to. And today, you know, just like I said, as a pastor's kid, You know, I didn't have a traumatic experience. You know, and I've had to learn I'm responsible for my feelings. You know, if I'm having trouble with something going on, it's it's not trouble with the what, what the context is. It's not to fix the context. I, I got to deal with something inside of me. And, and, you know, these last years in recovery have really been about, for me, learning about my feelings. You know, As an addict, as an alcoholic, I struggle with feelings, especially negative ones. And my recovery over these last years isn't about, you know, not drinking. It's about emotional sobriety. It's about, you know, what can I do? And, and in the church, I've learned so much. Man, we really don't know how to help people deal with you know the the feelings they have we we try to walk alongside them right but I've also learned as pastors what skills do we have to do? And so I just uh, you know offered a class at my congregation uh, on forgiveness and I was shocked you know to walk with a group of people for five weeks and talk about that process of forgiveness and, and teach some skills and some tools and you know for me personally to walk through that and to say wow oh, you know, how do I handle my feelings today? How do I, you know, not turn to a chemical to fix my feelings? How do I, how do I, you know, turn to God and and live a life where I can be open and honest about my, my feelings? I mean, like you said, I I don't expect church members to be able to handle their feelings, you know, but, but, you know, try and figure out how do I handle mine? And, uh, you know, I think I was in denial for a lot of years, even in recovery about, how am i doing with my feelings you know and i I learned you know one of my mentors called it the popeye syndrome as a man we stuff our feelings we stuff our feelings we stuff our feelings we eat the spinach you know bludo's beaten up on us all week and then finally we take all we could take and we explode you know was really an exploder But growing up in Minnesota, man, I learned a lot of passive aggressive things (laughs) that were not helpful for me to just stuff feelings, not be assertive in communication, not be direct. And that's what I hear you saying, too, that I can really relate to. I don't think the church prizes assertive, direct communication, especially assertive, direct communication about our feelings. And I've had to grow a lot. You know, in in maturing, when somebody shares their honest, genuine feelings, I may disagree with them or try to minimize them or talk them out of them versus just acknowledging that they're feeling that way. And maybe even being honest. One of the scariest things for me sometimes is going to my church council and say, yeah, this is how I'm feeling about this.
0: Well, and and, and for pastors, you also become a lightning rod for feelings because people want to project and say, I'm having these feelings and you caused it. And yeah. so they hold you accountable for their feelings and they do that left and right. And it's really hard to define yourself in the midst of that. Oh, uh, it is. Yeah,
1: it is. You know, the reality is I've, I've done it poorly at times and oh, yeah. at other times we all do. I've done it, done it better. And you know, today, you know, one of my friends said to me a couple of weeks ago, he said, try as I might, I've never been able to ascend to anything beyond human. You know, <laughs>
0: Great, great hearing your story about Anne. I've always enjoyed you. Never, you're never a dull moment. Man, I love you. Oh, I love you too, man. Take care. God bless you. We'll see you.
2: My story of addiction and grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith, which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our pastor upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, that phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization.